Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. I'm your host, Alexandra Sasha Gorishek, and in each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. In this episode, changing the way we think and talk about our humanitarian response, I speak with the Undersecretary General for National Society Development and Operations Coordination for the IFRC. We talk about shifting a classic humanitarian paradigm and the concrete changes we need to make if we really want to protect the full dignity of people impacted by crisis. The, the principles of humanity, it really talks about alleviating human suffering, right, in all circumstances and, and to dignify the conditions of living of, of people. And when we do provide humanitarian services, the, the key question is, do you plan with a dignity-focused approach or do you just deliver aid? And this makes a, a, a huge, huge difference. My guest today is Javier Castellanos, IFRC's Undersecretary General for National Society Development and Operations Coordination. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. What does that mean in the context of the IFRC? And what do these two things have to do with each other, meaning national society development and operations coordination? At the end of the day, there is not a single operation in the world where our national societies are not at the center of the action. And being in the center or at the center of the action, it means that uh, a national Red Cross, Red Crescent society has to have certain capacities in place that can guarantee not only trust in communities, but that also can, can guarantee quality of services. So the development component is combining elements of trust, trust from communities to the national society, from governments to national society, to stakeholders to national society, and that requires a lot of investment in terms of how they function, how they operate, what accountability levels they have, how they are organized themselves, how they work with their constituency, looking into their uh, local branches, how they, they train the volunteers, etc. So there is a, a significant investment in terms of can a national society perform according to the expectations that the national societies have. But then comes the issue of the operations then. Because when humanitarian situations happen, first of all, we aim not to happen. So the engagement of national societies at local level in high-risk areas, it means uh, the capacity for national societies to have local connections with the communities, do community risk reduction on different uh, hazards on them but at the same time have the capacity to act and react and respond when humanitarian crises or, or, or disasters happen. So the operations coordination means how we can connect local action with national action, with international action. And it means connecting a system as, as one organization that is composed but 
by its its membership, an IFRC composed of 191 Red Cross Red Crescent societies. But it is how also we are so local. As we know, we talk about 188,000 local offices that we need to have a system that connect us as an institution, as a network. How our membership understand our systems and how we are capable to provide the right coordination. Because if you look also in coordination, there is one uh, word that we sometimes take it for granted, which is the principle of universality. Universality means the capacity to support each other as a national societies. But that capacity to show solidarity among national societies needs a substantial investment on information management, coordination, what is needed, how can it be effective, how can it be efficient, etc. Can you give me a concrete example of how effective national society development over the years has enabled coordinated action in operations and perhaps vice versa? I think the best example right now, if I can, it comes to my mind, is Turkish uh, Red Crescent Society, Kisila. When the earthquake happened this year, uh, this national society was able to operate in the first minutes of the operation. They were able to, to, to respond and to mobilize their local branches and headquarters uh, immediately with relief teams, with psychological support teams, with etc. different uh, teams. But let's look just back, this National Society 20 years back. When they had suffered an earthquake, this National Society did not have the conditions. This National Society required a significant support from the IFRC network in order to respond, to guarantee that uh, in the first weeks the humanitarian service we, uh, was provided, we, uh, 20 years back, we sent emergency response teams and we had a big operation in, in earthquake in, with international staff. This time, the National Society had the conditions, had the capacities in place, had the skills, had the people trained, and in questions of seconds, the National Society was already on the ground. How do, did we respond? So in the case of Turkey, it took us two hours for us to say, look, you are going to send 1,000 volunteers to the field. You can increase the number of volunteers and we will put our disaster response emergency fund and we allocated 2 million Swiss francs. The National Society was able to mobilize 5,000 volunteers. And this comes with a lot of, for example, uh, technology information that the National Society was able to track the move of all the volunteers in their own uh, phone systems or tablets. They were able to know which other organizations were going to support their primary action that was food-related activities. They were able to know what kind of search and rescue initiatives were uh, they were able to provide, etc. But they have also a leadership that was able to go to the ground and ensure that the ground decisions are supported by the entire system. So I think that is a, a, a great example when we see that the investment in capacity enhancement 
has really paid off when significant humanitarian operations are challenging Red Cross, Red Crescent societies. Can you talk a little bit about the National Society development? I know one of your teams is charged specifically with that file. What exactly is it they, they do uh, to help national societies develop, and um, how do they do it? Well, the view is that we separate what we call core development from capacity enhancement. So the National Society Development Team looks those areas that are core for the existence of national societies. And let me give you the most simple example. A national society needs to have a good law that is recognized by the uh, state and that is regularly updated in order to guarantee that the national society has that level of capacity to operate in the country according to the Geneva Conventions, right? The second one, the national society needs to have a good statutes that are capable to uh, adapt to, rea- to the reality of the country, the reality of their uh, uh, working environment. Uh, let me give you an example. In Nepal, recently, they changed as an state. They, they have now a federal state. The statutes were not for a federal state. So our role is to say, okay, how your national society can adapt now to the new way of operating in your country if you are a federal state. So we have to change completely statutes. Then comes the issue of leadership. What sort of leadership is needed in national society to guarantee conditions of integrity, of accountability? And I'm not talking about the president or the secretary general of national society. I'm talking about leadership in general, on what are the elements that gives the national society the essentials to say, we can guarantee that by strengthening the integrity of the national societies, having good policies is good, but without implementing is not good. So how do you guarantee from policy to action? How do you guarantee from principles to action? How do you guarantee that any any resource financial resources that national societies receive are accountable, are transparent, and that the national societies have the capacity to say, okay, with the money that I have, this is what I'm doing. And the other element is human resources. National societies are combined by volunteers and staff. So does the national society have the right conditions to support those volunteers or not? Does the staff or not? But national societies are composed by local branches. Do those local branches respect the, what is about the, 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 the system as one national society with the principle of unity that, that indicates that in, in every country it should be only one national society? So we help in the core development to guarantee that the national society has the essentials to operate, to be trusted, and to be what we call the auxiliary role in cases of humanitarian relief for the government. It sounds like we're really getting into the heart, to the heart of what the IFRC is all about. Local response with a global reach and coordination and support behind it. As you said, there are many good examples uh, where that results in an effective, sustained, and strategic response. 
But what are some of the things that we need to improve? What are the gaps and the challenges that we need to address to be where we really need to be? You know, we have a, we have a, something that we call the capacity building fund. And the, in the, when we decided what will be the topics that we will need to address in the capacity building fund, we were looking in where we can make the difference in terms of national society development, right? Because the, the question is about national society development, right? And we look, the first element is strength and integrity. The second element is improving the financial sustainability of national societies to sustain their activities. The third one was uh, investing in technological development in order to guarantee that their systems, their information is in place. The fourth component was enhancing volunteering and youth. The fifth one was enhancing local capacities of branches of the Red Cross, Red Crescent societies in order to guarantee that they provide the minimum quality standards that we need. And the sixth one was gender as a key component in terms of protection, gender, and inclusion. So what do we need uh, when you ask those questions here? These are the permanent. But if we want to look those permanent actions, what we need is a strong leadership to understand the context and how the context is changing. And one of the things that we normally try to do is we said we have to be agents of change as well in national societies. Because the risk is that we can be a business as usual. We strengthen our policies, we do this and that and that, but we don't understand the context, how the context has changed how the specific situation has changed and is challenging the national society. And to do that requires a strong leadership. And somehow we try to facilitate discussions to understand what are the challenges imposed into a national society all the time to be relevant in a context that uh, might challenge the existence of national societies in one way or another. So this level of, of, of regular curiosity in terms of saying, are you relevant? Are you dealing, the real huma uh, dealing with the real humanitarian challenges? Do you know how to, to address those humanitarian challenges? Are you principle-based organization when you deal with those challenges? Is the normal day-to-day -day activity that we are trying to, to achieve with national society? from how we operate to external challenges. One of the biggest global issues right now is climate change. Storms and droughts are more frequent, weather patterns are unpredictable. You've been involved in humanitarian work for almost four decades. How has this changed the way we respond, climate change that is, and how do you see us changing or growing our response in the future? You know, this is probably one of the biggest frustrations that many humanitarians and people in the world we have. 
because the sense of urgency is not there. There is a lot of talk about climate change, but in our type of work, what we, what we normally see is the consequences of climate change. What we see is more people starving because there is no food. What we see is more people getting sick because they don't have the water that they need. Uh, what we see is more disasters affecting uh, the livelihoods of millions of people every day. And the consequence of, of it, you know, what are the coping mechanisms? How the people is coping with the problems? How is affecting their lives, um, their mental health? And this sense of urgency, it is not yet there uh, globally. Huh? I'm not talking about Red Cross, Red Crescent only. And I always try to put this example. When we had the pandemic, we had the whole of society approach. And that meant that the entire world cooperate for one cause, to stop the pandemic. The scientific community connect each other and share information, and they were absolutely generous to find a solution. The humanitarian community did as much as they could in order to save lives. The health sector did their part. The education sector did their part. All frontline workers did their part. Governments put financial resources, etc., etc. And that sense of unity of action, it was impressive in, in today's uh, world, right? Why this not happen when we talk about climate change? Why? So I think the frustration around climate uh, change uh, uh, from the humanitarian lenses, right? It is that we are constantly living the consequences. The human suffering is there and we leave a lot of people behind and we don't know what will happen with their lives. And because there are no conditions, many times the hardest to reach are the most affected. The poorest of the poor are the more affected. And many of them are ending exploit. Uh, many, of, many of them end with uh, different forms of abuse. Many of them are using negative coping mechanisms to survive. And this is just growing and growing vulnerabilities that uh, at one point in our life, we were going to see the consequences, the real consequences. So this interview was recorded in advance of the COP28 meeting which starts uh, at the end of November, and this, and it will be published during COP. So uh, as our listeners are hearing this conversation, it's already happening. Your message was loud and clear. Um, I assume that is what you would want to say to the people and organizations gathered at COP. But is there something you want to say about the role of local action and coordination on the ground in this context of climate change and the need for urgent action. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, the message number one is act urgently, right? All of us. The second one is uh, invest in locally led action. And invest in locally led action means that we have to see how communities do have a role to play how different communities interact with local authorities, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing is that we are saying is 
we need to adapt the financial mechanisms that exist to address the impacts on communities based on, on, on climate-related uh, uh, events. The fourth one is invest heavily in anticipatory action and in early, or early warning, early action. If we anticipate we could really do significant, significant gains to reduce the impacts on the vulnerability of the people. And the fourth thing is we have to do much more in nature-based solutions. We have to do greater investment on, on how nature-based solutions are going to support uh, communities to withstand with the severity of emergencies that are happening all the time. In your work, uh, Javier, you stress the importance of respect for human dignity. Can you explain why this is so important and what does it mean concretely in the context of humanitarian work? At the end of the day, if you look at our principle of humanity, you will see that I always go to the principles, right, uh, of, of our institution. But the principles of humanity, uh, the principle of humanity really talks about alleviating human suffering, right, in all circumstances and, and to dignify the conditions of living of, of people. And when we do provide humanitarian services, the, the key question is, do you plan with a dignity-focused approach or you just deliver aid. And this makes a, a, a huge, huge difference because when you plan an operation or a working in a, co in a community resilience or humanitarian case, when you plan with the dignity lenses, you will, you will look into participation, you will look in, into equality, you will look into inclusion of individuals, you will look into the voices of communities. You will look into how uh, communities feel themselves that they can contribute. You will look into be an enabler to use communities' own capacities to overcome their problems and not uh, a power relations. And when you plan with uh, with the notion of dignity, you will you will put yourself first. Would I like to be treated like this? So you put respect as a, as a key component, right? Uh, you look into no discriminatory behavior, no marginalization. You name it. So dignity, it is it is not just a word. Is 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 what our fundamental principles are telling us what we have to do. And many times uh, we confuse to say, okay, we have a humanitarian operations. Oh, no, we relieve uh, goods. That is not dignified if we haven't listened to the communities. It is easy to, well, not, not easy, but it, it is more easier to deliver relief goods than connect with communities have the opportunity to listen what they are feeling, etc. 
So for me, dignity in operations is a, a, such a crucial component. And um, recently I was in, in, in a mission where one of our colleagues said to me after the mission, ah, but the problem with you is that you are unstoppable because you are in the community and we plan go to the left and then you say, no, no, I want to see that in the right, in the center, in the back and forward. And you start talking with communities. And I said, well, but isn't it what we should be doing? But the second thing that we have when we talk about dignity is, you know, in the humanitarian system, we, we know that we don't have the financial resources. We know that we are extremely low in terms of what the humanitarian needs are. And we said, well, we are doing the best we can. And it's true that we do the best we can. But what I always try to encourage to the team is to say, look, if we have this amount of money, amount of money but we know that we have other actors, planning with the lenses of dignity should force us to bring all of us together and to say, guys, we are doing half good. But if we united, we cooperate, collaborate, etc. we could do much, much better with the lenses of dignity. And many times I think uh, we are more interested because we have a donor who's telling us, you know, okay, I give you the money, uh, you are supposed to, to perform this. And many times we don't go back to the donor and we say, guys, we want to do it, but we want to do it well. We respect with the communities. This requires engagement. This requires participation. This requires us to shift the power relations. Uh, and um, that's something that probably we will need to embed more in our humanitarian operations, but not only on ours, right? In the humanitarian ecosystem. Uh, I, I feel that many times we have put dignity as a... As a as a nice word, not, not as a way we plan for. One area that's relevant here is um, the work in community engagement and accountability, or CEA, as we refer to it. Can you explain to us what that is and what role it plays in ensuring our actions are not only meeting community needs, like you've been talking about now, but that our response engenders a greater respect for people's basic dignity. Yeah. I, I will probably separate in two on the community engagement accountability. Um, one is the one that we dedicate time to engage with communities. We try to understand their communities' behaviors, beliefs, values, attitude, and how they organize themselves. And we build together with them a, a future that they will feel comfortable with. And that requires uh, uh, what we call the community mobilization, right? Uh, the key issue is understanding, understanding, don't be biased. You need to understand what are those dimensions in the communities. And once you understand and you have community trust, you can really move to the next level. Then the other component is the community engagement accountability that is telling us, hey, 
are you doing what you are supposed to do? Are you really listening the communities? Are you changing your programming? Because what community is telling is, is, is something completely different. How we respect uh, communities' uh, concerns. So let me give you an example. When uh, Ebola happened, uh, we couldn't understand why communities were throwing stones to, to the volunteers. And the community engagement and accountability in, uh, did what they have to do. Talked with communities, listened to communities, what their concerns are, understand what their main issues. And they came to us and they said, look, bodies or, or their family members are in, in the house. They don't have access to see them. So you, the volunteers are entering and they're going out in body bags. The thinking of the communities is that we have done something to them, that we have taken their organs, that we have done something very bad to them. And they have not seen what happened with the, with the body. And they felt that it's not dignified the way they are being treated. So what we learned from that is to say, okay, this is not about dead body management. This is, this is about dignified burials. So imagine how we change already our narrative. So then we say, what does it mean dignified burials? After the community engagement done, we understood that we were using body bags that were black. And for those communities, uh, color white was going to give a rest to the people. The second thing that we learned is that they wanted to see the face of the person, right? For the last time. So what we did is body bags uh, that inside has a cover that is transparent. So we could open the body bag and the family members could see the body that were in one piece, in perfect conditions, etc., And they could say goodbye to them. So I'm putting this example on community engagement and accountability that dignifies the way we work. But let me go to the gender component. Community engagement and accountability provides a lot, a lot of information in terms of what could be the gender bias in operations, what could be the gender dynamics or abuses in operations, and could give us some guidance that something is wrong, either that is perpetuated by the own community, you mean warlords of power dynamics, or it could be done by any other institution. So the community engagement accountability is like the voice of awareness that allow us to activate other, other options, right? And finally, let me give you the example of the community engagement accountability when needs massive awareness on different activities. This happened in Haiti, where we had a radio program, a weekly radio program, where we have SMS, that communities have access to information. We have WhatsApp, we have 
information sessions, information booths, etc., etc., with communities, in order for them to provide us feedback on what we are doing good or what we are doing well, uh, not so good. Uh, so it is a substantial component of any humanitarian operation. Uh, the issue is how do we use the information and if this information is really leading to change how the humanitarian system is operating in a given country. If we can move on to um, a more personal side of this interview, if you don't mind, I'd like to learn a little bit uh, more about you. I know you're from Ecuador, but what was your childhood like? And what are the things that you remember that really influenced you during growing up? So I would probably say I was a happy boy. I grew in, in, in a city in the capital. I used to do a lot of um, a very own, a young age hiking in the mountains because I am in the mountainside in, in Quito. Uh, so at the very young age, I did a lot of uh, hiking to the mountains with friends. I used to play football in the streets. And, and I used to be uh yeah very connected with with the society with different groups of, of different types of, of 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 people so i think at the end of the day was a diversity was part of my my day to day growing yeah in, in my family we used to host i don't know probably like 30 foreign students in my house over so many years. So not at the same time. <laughs> not at, well, I think there was one time that we had over four or five in my house. Oh, wow. So we were very also international in that sense that we were, um, yeah, very welcoming family in that, in, in, in that case. And, and normally all the activities could happen at how in my house with friends and, and mm -hmm. so my parents were very supportive of us being inside the house and outside of, uh, of the house mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i would say that that could determine some of my uh, my childhood and and well at that time you will never do it again in today's world but at the age of 8 i think i decided that i don't want to take the bus of the school and that I will go with my brothers in any transportation that they will take. Uh -huh. I was the youngest, so okay. I, was, <laughs> I, I was following them. And uh, how did you get involved with the Red Cross? And uh, that I think that's how did you end up in, in this world of humanitarian affairs? So I was 13 years old, and I heard for the first time the Red Cross in my school. And I joined the Red Cross Club in my school, and and it was nice because I started learning first aid and a um, few other things. Uh, but to be honest, I took it more for fun, right? I didn't take it serious um, at that time. 
But uh, then I had a motorcycle accident where I was uh, on the mo uh, motorbike. I almost died. And it was really, really bad uh, uh, bike accident. And I remember that nobody was able to, to help me, right? To provide uh, first aid. So when I recover, I had a, I had a good time for reflection at that age. And something that I promised myself in that time, it was that I would not like other person to pass the same experience that I had and that nobody was able to, to help me. So it, it, it was like the transformation moment of, of realization to say I had a skill, not others had the skill. And if I can help in the future to others, I, I, I will do it myself. So then I returned to the Red Cross and I redo my training program. And I said, okay, this is it. I, I, I will not uh, yeah, allow this to happen again if it's in front of my eyes. And that was the beginning of how it started. And then you actually became employed. You became staff at the, at the Ecuadorian Red Cross, right? But you also had other interests and other jobs. How did, how did which happened first? How did you end up um, as a staffer uh, with a career prospect? quite serious career prospects in the Ecuadorian Red Cross. So I never left the Ecuadorian Red Cross in my heart. And I still believe I'm a volunteer of the Ecuadorian Red Cross. Um, because uh, first of all, when you are a volunteer, I believe you are a volunteer for life, right? Uh, because it's in the spirit of volunteer work. It is not about... Uh, if you have a salary or not. Um, so I was volunteer from uh, 17 years. So from the 13 to years old to 30 uh, with the Ecuadorian Red Cross. And uh, so I did different types of volunteer work that you can imagine. No? Everything that you can imagine. Uh, but of course, I graduate. I need to. <laughs> I, uh, I need to take care of myself and my family. I had a job, and I was doing television. So I used to have a a television production company for ten years, and that was my my let's say my job. Uh, but that is, I never left the Red Cross. So I was doing volunteer work, but it happened to me something that. Um, I was not, there was moment in, a moment in my life that I was not happy. And I was asking myself what it, what it is. And I realized that uh, um, while in the television company, things were going very well. And you can get uh, good financial resources. My heart was uh, a little bit empty or something that uh, I need passion. And I realized that my passion for for what I was doing in television was there professionally, etc. But that was not that passion 
that I always wanted in my life, which is being closer to, yeah, to communities, to people in need, to, yeah, to reduce human suffering, etc. And then um, the Red Cross at that time says, um, Javier, would you like to come back to us, but now in a position? And... Yeah, if I would make the story, you would laugh. But it was like, my salary was like probably 10 times lesser than I used to have in the television company. And I said, yes. And yeah, the rest is history. Was there someone uh, specifically that inspired you, that, you know, made you feel like there's, there's another way that there's satisfaction in in helping others oh, by all means i had i had one i was yeah the luxury of having somebody who can guide you and making you humanitarian so um, that time we have a director general that was in the the title dr eugenia sanchez and we used to call her Mama Eugenia, Mother Eugenia. And uh, she was an inspiration. Uh, she was a, a, a woman with a, a tremendous long-term thinking. And I don't think she was uh, the leader for that time. She should have been, she was way ahead of, 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 of the time. And she had this vision that youth, young people should be the next generation of leaders in the Red Cross. So she was an inspiration, a guide, a mentor, a coach. Uh, she puts a lot of effort for us to say, for you to be in the Red Cross and wear a Red Cross vest, the red vest, you need to be a value-based uh, member of this family. And, and she invested in, in making sure that at the same time we do the same to the next generation. So we had to make sure that we will prepare in the next generation of leaders while she was preparing us to be a, a generation of leaders. With everything that's going on in the world, at the end of the day, um, what brings you comfort or hope? You know, that's a good question because um, many times I've been asking myself um, what is happening to the world of today. And sometimes I feel that when, when we see what is going on, even my mind is right now moving from Africa to Asia, to Americas, to Europe, to Middle East. Um, I think we have a sense of, of, of responsibility uh, to ensure that we can pass our voice of humanity. I strongly believe in uh, that humanity, that when it's properly understood, uh, it is a driving of change. And, and I believe that there is always a light in the darkness where when we see things that are not moving, that we can say, you know, 
if you put passion and attention and courage and engagement and, and commitment, something good will happen to a lot of human beings right now that are in, in terrible living conditions. So it is not about hope. It is about passion and commitment that uh, drives uh, what I believe. And, and I believe that uh, many millions of volunteers and staff that we have around the globe, uh, they have that light. Uh, probably we bring hope to people and people has a lot of hope on, on, on organizations like ours. But we have to bring humanity as the main uh, yeah, component of change in this world. You may have already answered this last question just now, but um, the name of the podcast is The People in the Red Vest. So people like you, what does the Red Vest mean to you? Okay, to me, the, rest, the, the Red Vest is a big responsibility. But, you know, Red Vest comes with um, a compromise. It is not about wearing it, right? It's a compromise between your values and the organizational values. It's your compromise of what your, your feelings are telling you to do and what your mindset knows that to fulfill your humanitarian mission, uh, how you have to behave. It is about uh, always looking forward, uh, learning backwards, but looking forward. Uh, and it means also a lot in terms of, of, of the image as an institution that we want to, that we always want to be. So the Red Best is a, is a, it's like a wedding, you know, when you, you, you have a <laughs> your own wedding. It's a wedding with humanity, but value-based. And, and many times I am worried that um, we forgot that the value base is what determines the actions when we reach to fulfill our, our, our mandate. Thank you, Javier, for uh, your insights and uh, for letting our audience to get to know you a little bit. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard and me, Alexandra Sasha Gorishek, with production and engineering support from Damien Naylor. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard and Melis Vigan Meshe. Graphic design by Valentina Shapiro and web support from Chris Aqua and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>